0: I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds. For episode 89, we read Ages of Discord, a structural demographic analysis of American history by Peter Turchin, published in 2016.
1: Peter Turchin was born in 1957 in Obninsk, Russia. He studied at Moscow State University's Faculty of Biology until 1977, when his father, who was a Soviet dissident, Valentin Turchin, was exiled from the Soviet Union. In 1980, Turchin received a BA in biology from New York University. He received a Ph.D. in zoology from Duke University in 1985. He is an evolutionary anthropologist specializing in cultural evolution and cliodynamics, a subject I think we're going to learn a little bit about today. It involves mathematical modeling and statistical analysis of the dynamics of historical societies, so it seems like something he kind of invented on his own or maybe with some other folks. I don't know. He's a professor at the University of Connecticut and has published over 200 articles So he says, uh, this analysis by my colleagues and me of historical states shows that complex, large-scale human societies tend to go through cycles of alternating, he calls, integrative and disintegrative phases. Long periods of relative equity, prosperity, and internal peace are succeeded by periods of inequity, immiseration, and political instability frequently ending in state collapse, revolution, and civil wars, which is pretty extreme. Each of the secular phases unfolds over several human generations. The typical period of the overall secular cycle is around two centuries. Although there's a lot of variability, depending on the type of society in question, he says, starting conditions, and chance events, so it's not quite 200 years each. His goal, he says, is to present in this book the best current understanding of why political violence in states waxes and wanes in long cycles. And to show basically that it does wax and wane in long cycles. This understanding, he says, is encapsulated in what has become known as structural demographic theory. I've never heard of this, and I assume this is kind of his idea. Structural demographic theory says that, among other things, that rapid expansion of population results in elite overproduction. Maybe some of us have heard this before. This is a really fascinating concept we're going to talk about today that's uh, an increased number of aspirants for the limited supply of elite positions in the society a favorable economic conjecture for the employers enables large numbers of intelligent hard working or simply lucky workers to accumulate wealth and then attempt to translate it into social status as a result upward mobility into the ranks of the elites will greatly surpass downward mobility that means there's just too many we have too many elites you know in 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 our case today and we'll talk about this a little bit later but we just have too many people who are educated. We're going to talk about law schools and medical schools. We have too many people who are overeducated entering into the elite class, but there's just not enough room for them. Basically this theory, structural demographic theory tells us there's only, there's a limited amount of space for elites. And once you kind of go past that, then there starts to be uh, dissent in uh, among the, uh, in, in factions among elites. And that's you know one of the major reasons that we have, these uh, these cycles of political instability and and uh, violence sometimes.
0: Yeah, I think that elite uh, overproduction was probably the most interesting piece. He talks about a lot of different factors, and the, and there's if you get the book, there's a lot of graphs, there's a lot of formulas. But the elite overproduction piece of it, I think, is something that it makes sense um, because he talks about you know there, at times when there's not elite overproduction, you have sort of a consolidated elite like we had um, maybe in the 50s and 60s before or in the 40s and 30s even before like the vast expansion of you know the the top colleges and and increasing access for people of different groups when it was sort of just the, the the descendants of colonial americans and maybe a few others that it's sort of consolidated into a true upper class and he he doesn't there's not really a lot of judgment in this book. He's really it's it's pretty clinical. So I you don't get a great impression of what he thinks, except to the extent that it affects stability versus instability. But he does mention, of course, that, that consolidation at the top that, that we saw in the period around World War II was a an exclusionary consolidation. It wasn't one that was really that allowed openness allowed people to rise up to the elites that often. But what it did do is that even when there were two parties. The people at the top, the people running things all knew each other or at least knew of each other, knew of the same sort of customs, same sort of traditions. And that's why when you, when sometimes you hear people today talk about how the two parties used to overlap a lot more and there were liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats and it wasn't all this, it was more collegiality, especially in the, in Congress. And I think that was true. And I think this is one explanation for that. It's Mm -hmm. that it was, there was a limited upper class in America that even when you crossed party lines, you were looking at the same sort of folks, the same clubs, the same schools and the same professions. As we opened up those clubs and professions and schools and, and elite status itself, which has been generally a good thing, you know, allowing people who weren't from, you know, fancy backgrounds to rise up on account of their merit. It's happened so quickly, he's saying, that now there are in-groups and out-groups among the elites, and it makes the the political fight much more intense. And I think we see it every time the presidential administration changes. You know, it's about throwing these guys out, getting these guys in. Right. And there, there's, it used to be the case, I, there'd always be, it seemed like there was always at least one person in the president's cabinet who was of the other party. And that, I think, for the second time in a row, hasn't happened. When we were younger, it was often the case, though. A lot of, uh, in our lifetime, a lot of Democrats' defense secretaries were Republicans or ex-Republicans. That way they could say, look, look, we're, we're serious on national security. We even have a Republican in the Defense Department. Mm-hmm. And then Bush had, I think, uh, Norman Mineta at Transportation, maybe. Same sort of thing. You know, it was like reaching across and saying, you know, here's somebody on the other side who I can work with. I'm not just a pure partisan. And you don't get that anymore, I think, because there are so many like Lincoln said, there were too many hogs for the teats when uh, he was dealing with office seekers in his day, because as soon as he became president back then, thousands of guys would descend on Washington saying, hey, you know, new party's in, I'm with you, Let, you know, can I be a postmaster in this town? And it, it it was a mess. Now you have that at a higher level, and it's uh, – I, I, Turchin would say it caught that conflict, that division among elites of there being too many people for the jobs causes – Uh, societal disruption.
1: Yeah, super fascinating. And to me, it it just was pretty compelling. And I think later we're going to talk about what evidence there is of elite overproduction. But, But really quickly, he says, elite overproduction is due in large part to vigorous upward mobility from the ranks of commoners. You just described that as a result the ranks of elites are swelled with individuals coming from very different socioeconomic and educational backgrounds so i think that's definitely what we're facing today right we're mm-hmm. we're we're very divided into uh ethnic and skin color groups and educational backgrounds i mean it's pretty, as you said each president as we as we switch sides it used to be the case that you'd have a lot more people to just kind of stick around where today it's kind of a wholesale like get him out and what's been fascinating to me too is you know biden ran as a as a moderate you know adult in the room and he he's selected the for his government essentially the exact same people that bernie sanders would have picked or elizabeth warren it really makes no difference mm-hmm. it's basically their team is in <laughs> trump trump kind of broke that uh that chain a little bit because there was a lot of republicans that you know didn't want to go into the administration but anyway uh very interesting. He, he in chapter three he talks about these. Well, actually, for several chapters he talks about historical phases and and uh, as Kyle. You said there is lots of math in this thing. There is lots of graphs, lots of Greek letters and, and equations. Kyle and I were lawyers. We don't do math. Not math. Guys. I uh, I take his word for it. Although we did, frankly, a lot of page turning. <laughs> when we got into like pages and pages and pages of equations that um, make no sense at all to me. Okay. That said, uh, he had some really interesting, I mean, he was trying to apply it to history. uh, And look, I'll just say at the outset, I don't know if these equations have any like relationship to the real world. Uh, I'm always skeptical, frankly, of, of math in, in, in political science. That said, uh, he, he he came to a lot of really interesting conclusions as a result. So I think all these are worth talking about. All right. So his first historical phases, he says, the first phase from 1780 to 1830 was characterized by low immigration. Now, this factor is going to be very, very important immigration. It really comes to the top. So between 1780 and 1830, low immigration, real wages tripled, and the relative wage more than doubled, while the American population enjoyed tall and increasing stature and life expectancy. So he, his equations show that basically when times are good and people are getting along, they're also taller in America. And when people are not getting along and things are, are, and there's political instability, then people are actually shorter. And this, this even occurs in the 1970s, which I thought was pretty fascinating because you, we've, we just think of it as a, a pretty steady line up. Like Americans are getting mm-hmm. bigger, you know? Yeah. yeah but there was a pause a little bit. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that surprised me. And it, it surprised me that, well, it'll we'll come later, but that actually kind of recurs. And it's, it's a, uh, at first I thought he was not taking into account immigration because a lot of increased immigration is from places where men are shorter these days. We're getting less, uh, that's true. Yes. Yeah. Six and a half foot tall Swedes and, and, you know, more like little fellows, but he, he's even looking at like native born white native born black, like, you know, comparing apples to apples over the years. And there's still a little bit of decline in the bad years. That's, that seems surprising. Yeah. Fascinating factor. So he, he gets into the second phase, um, which from 1830 to 1910, which is when he says the United States experienced a massive immigration wave. Real wages stagnated between 1840 and 1880. But more tellingly, the proportion of GDP going to wage labor declined from 1830 to 1910. That's something we talk about a lot now about how much this percent is getting of the national pie. And right. I mean, you, you hear that. That's the sort of thing Bernie Sanders talks about all the time. But if the numbers are what they are, it doesn't matter who's saying it. If it's true, it's true. And he, he points to this as a, a sign of declining stability. And this, again, he says during the second half of the 19th century, average stature and life expectancy declined while age at first marriage increased. Again, that sort of just indicates people are not, if your age age at first marriage increasing in those days was mostly, I, I believe a factor of people not being able to afford to go off on their own mm-hmm. people being sort of like, I can't even move out of my parents' house. How can I get married? You know, where today there are other factors involved in that. People are living alone and, and being single for longer for, more social reasons but in in 19th century america that's a sign of that there's some group that's stagnating or even falling behind in ways you know and that and they're, they're not marrying as young as their parents did because they can't either they can't buy a farm or they can't find a steady job or something like that and so he characterized this whole second phase as sort of troubling period
1: so third phase, 1910 to 1960, this is the phase that you just were describing. This is the kind of the golden era where Congress worked. They were friends. They got along. It was LBJ, LBJ was master of the Senate, and uh, he he half the time was trying to pass a, a Republican president Eisenhower's agenda. So you had a, a time where there was liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats, and it was the parties were completely... Split, but there was just this uh, uh, amicable nature uh, in Congress. And I think a lot of times we attribute that just to the fact that uh, it was kind of post war. And he's saying that's just, that was just the phase. And it actually had started much earlier than World War II. Uh, And he says that period was characterized by declining immigration, especially after 1920 when they had some pretty strict laws. Real wages increased dramatically by a factor of three and a half. Average height and life expectancy also grew in a remarkable fashion, while the age of first marriage decreased, except during the 1930s, which is also also a very interesting factor. When when things are worse, your first marriage you're usually younger. um, Well, it trends younger than than when things are going good, when it trends kind of older, which is you know kind of a fascinating. And you know when it comes to not to dwell on this, but when it comes to like height. I, I swear i've read just dozens and dozens of times in newspapers they've saying that or sorry life expectancy not height, life expectancy that that life expectancy has been on a an upward trajectory every single year until like this past year during covid which yep. you know and he goes on to say basically that's not true <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's been times when it's up and times when it's down
1: you know <laughs> so very interesting
0: yeah so we get to the fourth phase we're in now starting in the 60s so another massive immigration wave he he points out gdp share to workers declined real wages stagnated the same as it did in the second phase now he says the rate at which stature and life expectancy increased slowed down and for some population segments even reversed this is written in 2016 it started to reverse a little bit right after this book was written which when i was reading this that sort of to me looked like a proof of what he was saying. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm I'm skeptical of this sort of thing too. I think that you can't put history on a graph. You can't put politics on a graph. People are people and events happen. I mean, there was no, there was nothing on the graph for COVID, you know, that there was nothing on the graph for nine 11. You know, these were exogenous factors that affected our politics, affected our national stability and, and all these other things that you couldn't just predict by trends that were happening up to that point. And yet you have this sort of meta trend that he's talking about here. And it, it, that the evidence bears it out at 2017. We, it says, uh, I'm looking at some of the figures. Now there was a 0.03 decline in life expectancy. And if you look mm. at the graph, it is straight up from the fifties. Sometimes it grows more quickly. Sometimes it grows more slowly, but then it kind of plateaus around 2014 at 78 years, almost 79 years life expectancy in America. And it, has never quite cracked 79. It started to rise again in 2020, according to this. So that's kind of surprising considering we're in a pandemic, but uh, that's interesting. Cause that's sort of the thing that if you look at a progressive view of history or, or Wiggish view of history, that's one of those things that just keeps getting better. You know, you read science fiction, everybody lives to be a hundred, 120, you know, that's, that's how we think of the future is not that there are swings and the the good points we've achieved through medical advancement, scientific advancement will decline. That's that doesn't really occur to people, but in Turchin's telling it's all a wave and that sometimes when you talk to people about politics. They talk about everything's a pendulum, you know, that's sort of a conventional wisdom, you know, but this is kind of a very big, slow pendulum that he's talking about here. But instead of the folk wisdom of of politics, this he's got some numbers to back it up, and it's, it's really it's interesting, and it's it's a little disturbing.
1: Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Uh, like Nietzsche called it uh, eternal recurrence. Everything basically in the, under the sun. There's nothing new. But um, he he pinpoints again immigration. Says uh, overall, there's a negative relationship between labor supply and indices of well-being as predicted by the over labor oversupply principle. Now he's, uh, I think in just maybe in just a minute, we'll dive a little bit more into this, but one thing is for sure is that he, he, there is definitely a leading factor, or you might even call a culprit when it comes to the political instability, and that is immigration. So in the second phase 1830 to 1810 1910 when wages stagnated and average stature and life expectancy declined these these sorts of things um, you had massive immigration from Ireland and Germany and Eastern Europe and then during the this fourth phase that we're in right now from 1960 to today another massive wave of immigration this time Really, from all over the world, but he, but especially from Mexico. Um, now we're getting more from South America, Haiti, but uh, from from all of the world. Turchin himself, you pointed this out to me offline. Turchin himself, of course, is a, a Russian immigrant, Eastern European. So uh, he doesn't have any. I I didn't detect that he has anything, any, any agenda of his own when it comes to immigration. This is just here is a guy who has a mathematical model and the model keeps showing that immigration is like the leading factor. <laughs> and and so he just, he's just sharing it with the world.
0: Yeah. I think he comes out of, like you said, from a mathematical point of view, I didn't, de- I didn't detect any animus and it, it doesn't seem there would be any, but he's looking at it through the, the economic effect, the math effect, which is if, if you increase the supply of something, its price declines. Right. So, I mean, if you increase the supply of labor, labor is cheaper. Mm. That doesn't mean labor at the top is cheaper. You know, the people, the professional class will still make what they make because most of the people who come here are not uh, PhD holders like, like Turchin They're, you know, it's, it's the lower class jobs that are getting out competed by an influx of labor. That makes sense. I mean, if you, just as a microeconomics point, he, he, takes that and looks at how it actually affected people and how it actually affected the distribution of wages across the economic spectrum. And it's, I guess, just kind of finds it hard to deny what you can see there is that it does cause this immiseration at the lower levels of income. And it, it's like I was saying it before in the podcast, this without any animus, without any nativism, is the probably the most anti-immigration book we've read. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like more so than than I think either of us actually is. He is. Um and just maybe that's there's more there's more to life than than math, but if if that factor is as if it does loom as large as he says it is. It's something to consider he takes from his equations that uh,
1: what immigration does and the, the the way that it operates functionally that immigration increases the labor supply at the lower levels of the lower economic rungs and by increasing the labor supply the the cost of labor goes down and of course that's a i mean that's a pretty um, straightforward economic concept but then he says uh, as a result it increases the the wealth of those at the top because they capture more of the gains, and I think that there is it is intuitive to some extent. But the way he proved it was through his equations, so I can't even tell you whether I think that <laughs> it was persuasive or not. So uh, about that part. Now, the, I th- I think it, I was pretty persuaded that um, that that's a if it's not causation, at least there's a very strong correlation between. Periods of immigration co- correlating directly with with the same period of of uh, political instability and elite overproduction, but whether whether this other factor is, is is the cause. In other words, like immigration itself increases the labor supply, which which uh, sh- um, transfers the even more of the wealth to the elite class, and that that factor generates. Is, is a huge contributing factor in generating too many elites. And so therefore we have, um, you know, there's several, he has several reasons, but this is one of the major reasons for elite overproduction is that there's too much money at the elite level. Basically, like there's too much, too much capital being captured by the elites, And so there's too many of them to, you know, there's, there's, too much to go around. And so there's too many of them. And it has, it caused, it has this, uh, elite overproduction. Now, um, how he connects that again is, is part of his math and part of his equations. And we're sorry that we failed you and that we don't have any flipping clue, like, you know, what, <laughs> whether <laughs> there was any accuracy there or not, but it is a fascinating factor. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I don't know if he's right, but I, I do think that it's, uh, it's really interesting food for thought that, um, that's kind of how operationally an increase in immigration. And so he goes through each of these phases and shows like, well, what happened during the uh, uh, mid to late 1800s up to 1910 was just a massive supply of, of immigration, which decreased the, I mean, that, I mean, it lined up with the gilded age. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and he'll say that, uh, you know, more or less the gilded age, we had really inexpensive labor because there were so many, uh, so many immigrants and not until like the 1920s when we had really strong, really strict uh, immigration laws and started to really slow that down did America start to change and, and turn that corner. And today, obviously, we have just massive, massive immigration and most of it illegal. Um, <laughs> mm. and, uh, and it lines up with his, with his theory
0: as well. So pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at... There's a graph here, uh, Figure three point three, that is real wages of unskilled labor in the United States from 1790 to 2010. And it's in the early days; it's growing gradually, you know, a little bit each year. There's some dips around the Civil War, and it really slows down during the the Long Depression in the 1890s. But then, really, right in the 1920s, like when we passed the Immigration of Act of 1924, there's a steep, steep increase in real Wages for unskilled labor that continues through the Great Depression, keeps going up, 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 all the way until looks like about 1975. Um, I think it was, it was 1965 that we had sort of reopened the uh, immigration system. What, what struck me about that was not just the correlation between immigration and wages, but also that it kept growing. Wages kept growing even through the Depression. You know, which was the worst, the worst time economically, maybe in our entire history. And I mean, unemployment was huge, although unemployment, as he notes, didn't include people when you, you counted as unemployed if you were working for a government program that was created to make jobs, which makes sense. It's like being, being on unemployment today. That was what the WPA was, except you had to work for it. So I guess because those wages were being pumped out through those government sort of make work programs, yeah. it kept, it kept it. That may have actually done its job and it was probably not perfect and wasteful. And, you know, we read the, uh, we've read the book about inflation, uh, last season that had a lot of criticisms of those programs, but, uh, it did keep wages up apparently because between the crash and when things finally started to get better, those wages were going up the whole time. And then they got even went up even more steeply as the uh, second world war began. And then the post-war boom, but that's um, at what, what I would take from that and what he's trying to show from that, I think is that the depression had less of an effect on wages than uh, immigration laws did.
1: Yeah. That surprised me. Yeah. Really interesting. Of course, on all the factors that you just raised about WPA, also the fact that we're in a, a deflationary cycle during the depression, so mm-hmm. even if you got the same wage now, it's worth more because a, a dollar was uh, worth more, you know, by the middle of the depression than than the beginning. So that's that's also a factor. All right, um, switching gears a little bit back to the elite overproduction. He has much more to say on this. is very interesting. He says uh, structural demographic theorists, which I take to mean himself, have argued that the most useful proxy for intra elite competition, that is competition among elites, is the demand for advanced degrees. Something that Kyle and I have some expertise on. <laughs> too much. Okay. He says the two most relevant degrees for individuals with ambitions to join the economic and political elite power networks in the US are what? MBAs and JDs. You guys all guessed that. Also, uh, he, he'll talk about medical school in a minute too as well. But all right. Some students, he says, in law schools become very wealthy or succeed in politics. But today, most law grads will become failed elite aspirants, earning in the range of forty to 60000 There are two and a half times more lawyers today than there were four and a half years ago. Or sorry, sorry, two and a half times more lawyers than there were 40 years ago. And the demand for MBAs has grown even more rapidly than for law degrees. Between 1971 and, ni- and 2007, the numbers earning the MBA grew sixfold in absolute terms and almost fourfold in relative terms. So he doesn't talk about this, but I, I suspect that's probably the case that before there was really law degrees and MBAs, and that was the thing that uh, the sign was: did you go to the prep school and you know go to Harvard or Princeton or whatever, and uh, you had a handful of of actual colleges most people didn't go to college. And if they did, you know, they go for a year and that was like all that they needed. Or, you know, they, if, if they graduated, it was almost for sure because they were rich and part of the, the club and part of the elites already where today you have a lot more people getting bachelor's degrees. And so the new proxy is JDs and MBAs. He has, he has a long conversation, which I found fascinating, but maybe, Maybe the folks listening wouldn't, but you know the uh, the demand for for law school graduates. What's changed is he has these fascinating graphs where you essentially like if you graduated from law school, you you more or less made the same type of money, or there is you know there's the, maybe a, a a normal bell curve or something, but then over time it started to split into humps where you had a lot of people making. Um, not too much. And then, uh, and then other, and then the other half kind of making a, making a good living where it's come to today, especially in the aftermath of the great recession, 2009, the starting salary for, for JD, um, graduates when we graduated, you know, 12 years ago or whatever was 160,000. And it's basically like, if you went to one of the elite law schools, you more or less were probably going to get 160,000. And if you went to a school that was outside the top thirty, you pretty much were going to be lucky to get uh, get you know a really good um, large law firm job. There just weren't going to be very many large law firm jobs for you. So, one hundred sixty really wasn't for most people uh, attainable. So you have a uh, you have like a really skewed uh, camel hump where you have a small number of folks who get one hundred sixty thousand as their starting wage, then a big gap. And then the others, their starting wage is like forty to fifty thousand or something like that. Super interesting, I think.
0: Yeah, it's like there's still the bell curve, but it's between twenty and a hundred thousand. Right. And there's that sort of wasteland, and then the weird spike where all the firms were—I don't want to say colluding, but they all had the same starting salary, you know, yeah. at the same time. And that, yeah, that was right when we came out of the, well,
1: which they pro- i think they do now. They have lockstep. And, but I don't know what the number is. I, I I heard it was 190. It might be more than that
0: now. I don't know. I mean, that's – yeah, that's crazy high. But that's even in this day, it looked like 18% of graduates were making that. So about one in five and more if you went to the top schools like you were saying and more if you were at the top of your class. So there was some something to it. But I think we were realizing maybe even by the time we were in school, certainly by the time we were out of school, there was – this sort of feeling that a lot of colleges were opening law schools is just a cash generator. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the reason it is a cash generator is because there's so many elites who are willing to spend that cash, borrow that cash, mostly. Because perhaps, if Turchin's right, it's because there were too many elites with too much money to burn. Mm-hmm. And like you were saying, there's if so many people in their social class already have BAs or, or Masters even, well, you gotta get JD. And I, me- I remember people saying like, we you know with a, with a law degree you can do anything. Yeah, like, that's yeah. that's not what it's for though. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's, supposed, it's right. supposed to be like I can do I can do most anything without it. <laughs> but that yeah, it's sort of credentialing. And we're we're gonna we're gonna get into a few books about meritocracy as the season goes on. So that's gonna be interesting. Uh, I want I'm curious how that applies to this. But for now, I think that that credential that elite credential is is pretty good evidence what he has here of, uh, of that elite overproduction of that churning of degrees and money that is is causing a lot of problems.
1: Well, and you can, he, he doesn't say this, but in my mind, while I was reading that, I was thinking to myself, yes, so you have, you have these third tier law schools and we're not going to name them, but guess what? They still charge the same as Harvard and Yale. Like the, the tuition isn't cheaper because Mm -hmm. it's less prestigious it's based, it's ba- the bar is basically set. And if you're a private school, you're pretty much going to charge that, which today is like, I think it's almost $70,000 a year. So something like that for most of these schools. And if it's, if it's a public school, then if you're in state, you're going to pay less, probably not way, way less, but you're going to pay less. And then I guess for, I guess for some public schools it's probably way less. But anyway, the point being most of the people going to law school are going to these private schools that are, that all charge the same, whether, whether you're, opportunity after you graduate is, is, is high or low. But I think the point being though, that it's kind of like a a trap for wannabe elites, you know, like Mm -hmm. this is your path. And of course, even society teaches us this, and I certainly felt this was taught growing up, you know, you want to get an advanced degree and that that's going to be your gateway to success. You know, education is, and I I think that's largely true, but probably mostly because of the credentialing point that you made. (laughs) It's not so much what you learn. But uh, they, th- you, you have folks who go to a third tier law school thinking they're getting the credentialing, thinking that they're going to enter into the, the ranks of the elite. But in fact, what they enter into is the, the ranks of the indebted. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and now, you know, you have this extreme debt and not a really good way to pay it off. And because there, there are a limited number of law firm jobs that pay enough. I mean, if you, if you can go to one of the law firms, then you can, have a good career and pay it off and go different directions to stay at the law firm or, you know, go in house or something like that. But if you, if you don't get that first step, you know, on, on the, on the ladder as you leave law school and instead you're kind of left in a, to wander and look for a job. And, um, and I can't count how many JDs that I know of who, who took something much, much less than, uh, than they had hoped for, or, even that they may have even been able to get before they went to law school, something like that. And it's, uh, it's sad, but it's kind of like a, it's almost like a bear trap for people who want to enter the the elite ranks.
0: Yeah. And it's, it, we, when he talks so much about elite pro overproduction and the elites are a small segment of society. So it's, it, I think it's easy to dismiss because it's not happening to most people. But I think this is a good example of how much the group that's, traditionally been in charge of things, leading things, leading movements. If there wasn't this overproduction, if law schools were putting out just enough lawyers to fill the available jobs, those people at the top would all be pretty happy, at least in that one career path. Mm-hmm. And some people are always unhappy, you know, et cetera. But the, the, mostly you'd be happy with your career choice at least, um, at least financially. When you have this, when you have people, if you borrow 70 and you come out and you're making forty you're in a tight spot. You know you're you're make, you're you're doing worse than if you hadn't gone. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and and you right but your expectations were much higher. And you're also educated and in a position to raise more hell about it. You know, when you when we talk when we read Martin Gurry's book, so many of the people who were in the streets were middle-class people. Wasn't, right, right, it
1: wasn't exactly. people
0: who were starving. It wasn't refugees or, or people who were, you know, abused in, in war and things. It was, it was a lot of middle-class people who are unsatisfied with their lot in life. This is part of it. And this is why somebody like Elizabeth Warren could promise, you know, student loan uh, repayments, upper middle-class welfare, which seems insane to people who never took out those loans or who had paid them off. Yeah, or It even seemed insane to some of us who are still paying our loans, but it's, it, it definitely speaks to a very specific and probably overrepresented in Washington segment of the population that is really just felt like they got sold a bill of goods. And that's a good example of what elite overproduction does. Yeah. And so I, I thought this graph was useful. This discussion he made about it was useful in, in saying, it's not just that there are too many people jostling for government jobs because it's not just about that. That's in some of the older examples he gives of Roman empire and, and the, you know, French kingdoms and things that that was what it was about it was about jobs at court jobs you know working for the emperor in different ways but that's not that's not it here and when I first started reading it when he was using some of the older examples as an introduction I thought well this is a free market though there's you don't have to have elite jobs you can this is, people can go out and start companies people can get into business or you know, academia there's a lot of different career paths but I think what he's saying is they're all over overfilled. You know, the the legal one was a good example, but he, I think he's suggesting that similar overproduction is happening in all the different elite fields. Yeah. I know that's true with MBAs. Everybody's I've met so many people who have MBAs and most of them don't even know why they got it. <laughs>
1: Cause they wanted to improve their job prospects and, you know, into the elite and so forth. But I mean, he's, yeah, to your point, he says the cost of getting elected to the house of representatives has more than doubled in inflation adjusted dollars between 1980 and 2012 between 2010 or sorry, 2000, 2010, the number of contenders for the house grew by 54% and the Senate by 61%. So even then, then he talks about medical schools. We have way more medical graduates now than we have internships in I've seen people not get, uh, not get matched <laughs> because there's, there's just not enough jobs to go around. So yeah, it's like, it's, we, he uses the a JD and MBA as the, as the top proxy, but you have multiple fields where it just shows that there's, there's too many, there's too many competing and it's late here, but I think it's worth saying, um, when he talks about, he talks about the progressive area and, uh, and says that one of the, one of the differences that was happening, is in the 1920s we just talked about there were stricter immigration laws put in place and then also Harvard and Princeton and Yale reduced their enrollment and therefore and thereby kind of reduced the competition within the ruling elite so they actually admitted more people before but they kind of came to the conclusion that there were too many too, too many people with degrees and they actually reduced their enrollment now today they reduce enrollment or keep it low for prestige factors he's arguing that the reason that they did it back then was, uh, and he has quotes from, from the deans and so forth, the presidents of the colleges, basically, they just think there's too many. And so, and it's, so it's becoming, um, I guess too common or whatever. Of course, now, um, uh, as we said, a lot of people have BAs, but then also, uh, the American medical association halved the number of medical schools. Now, I don't, I don't even know if they'd have the authority to do that now. Maybe they would, but, um, they reduce the number of medical schools by half because there just was too many medical graduates. So you have these factors of reducing immigration drastically. Re- so you drastically reduce immigration. You reduce the number of elites graduating from elite colleges. You reduce the number of pe- of people uh, graduating from medical schools. And it kind of changes the complexion <laughs> kind of overnight from, from mm-hmm. the 1920s. He says, um, It uh, it it effectively shut down immigration in America, and uh, it reduced the labor oversupply. And all these all these different factors reduced the elite oversupply as well, and and kind of set the stage for what we had in the nineteen fifties. You know, much uh, the forties and fifties, much more camaraderie and and much more comedy. Of course, um, you know he he makes the point, which is a good one, that uh, it didn't include women. It didn't include. Uh, Any minorities and didn't include Jews, you know, so you (laughs) so Mm -hmm. you had, uh, you know, uh, wasps who uh, who were in control and they were the ones who were limiting all this uh, and and limiting admissions to white Protestants who were wealthy coming from upper class families and so forth. But but it did. So there's a downside, of course, but it did in his telling and in his equations reduce the political instability.
0: It's pretty interesting. So what, so what he takes from all this and it, he maps all these different trends of stability and instability and kind of puts it together and they all follow each other roughly and, and he comes up with this high points and low points where it's stability and a chord is going up, up, up to the 1820s and it drops for or excuse me, instability is going up until the 1820s and then it comes down and then it goes back up and, and as these things, as stability drops, the these other, the sort of political stress index, he calls it, which is sort of your, your danger factor, shoots up and it, it goes up a lot more rapidly once it starts going. It seems, it, the way he describes it, as something that feeds on itself. So there's not a lot of political stress in the early Republic up until around 1840, 1845, and then it goes straight up until we get that civil war 20 years later. And the way he tells it, it's about half as high now. And the same sort of thing happened. It was low through the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, which is weird because we think of those as tumultuous times, but I guess there was just enough reserve of unity and good feeling from before that the other things didn't disrupt the whole country. Now he sees it going up, up, up again. And what would that mean? I mean, would it mean a lot of people talk civil war? I, feel like it's all hot air, but there's certainly a lot more discomfort with each other, a lot more anger, a lot more just really us and them feeling in the streets, in, in online, and even increasingly in real life, you hear people I I, I grew up in a neighborhood that was about half Republican, half Democrat. And you didn't hear people breaking friendships over a presidential election back then. Yeah. You know? Like it was just no, I mean, when I first started in politics, I, I remember getting the uh, – I was a committee man that got the voter rolls and was, like, giving out our literature and, you know, telling reminding people who got to vote. So I I could see who on the street was Republican, Democrat, Independent. And, they, you know, you had friends in both groups. You had, you know, families that were divided even the, within the family. No big deal. You don't feel that now. I mean, you, you see so many people – Oh my, this guy voted for Trump or this guy voting against Trump. Well, I, I can't talk to him. He's an idiot. You know, that's, that's, I think what Turchin's trying to capture and he does it with a lot more math than that sort of just vague feelings I just expressed, but he thinks we're heading for a cliff, heading for an explosion. And while it might not take the same shape as it did when it was the blue and the gray, uh, it's certainly nothing good.
1: Yeah. He leaves us with a big cliffhanger because he says we're on our way up. And of course, a lot of these factors, a ton of immigration, elite overproduction, I mean, I think that's what the 99% was. I think I think some of this primal scream on, on the right uh, and Trump's rise has to do with folks who are looking at the elites and are just mad as hell about where elites have taken them and and so forth. But Turchin, he says we're headed towards that. and Actually, he has this line. This was in 2016, don't forget. He has this line where he says during periods of ins- political instability, is that's when that's when most often you have pandemics. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's a prediction uh, that, that landed. Because um, with, with COVID and so forth, he, in 2016, there's no such thing as COVID. He had no idea. So that was interesting. But he says we're on our way up, but it's kind of a cliffhanger because I was waiting for him to say, and this is how it's going to turn back down. But he doesn't. He just basically says, yep, it's heading back up, uh, political instability, because all these factors are moving in that direction. And I mean... I think what he's what he's implying his entire book. I think his entire thesis is to say we're going to keep moving into the in the direction of political instability until unless and until we reduce immigration and we reduce elite oversupply, and you know the, the supply of elites. And I'm not quite sure how you do that, especially in this day and age where where what we're trying to do is uh, have d- to guarantee equity of outcome. You know, we, everybody has to be equally elite. Otherwise it's it, the society is a, is a racist, uh, you know, failure or whatever. So anyway, kind of a cliffhanger. He, he doesn't say one way or the other. He just kind of ends it saying like, yep, we're moving towards political instability. <laughs> Have a good one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was before Trump, right? I mean, Trump was, yeah. in, was running, but I, presumably he wrote this book, uh, long before Trump was, was a serious. was viewed as a serious candidate or whatever so
0: yeah i mean with the hindsight of the past five years it looks pretty prescient
1: all right i think we're way late that's it that's churchin catch us next time